AC and Efforts, this episode is sponsored by Liquid IV, and I gotta say, it's a delicious way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities, or if you just want to zhuzh up your boring old water. It's some tasty stuff, non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. There's also a sugar-free version. I really recommend the white peach. Su- surprise me. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code CNF at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. This episode is also sponsored by the word panic. Noun, a sudden overwhelming fear with or without cause that produces hysterical or irrational behavior and that often spreads quickly through a group of persons or animals. Or writers. In all of this, I I try to be a human first and a journalist second. Oh, how's it going, CNF? Or did CNF Pod that creative non-fiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories? I'm Brendan O'Mara. Kim H. Cross. The H stands for Hellraiser. That's not true. I, I don't know what the H stands for. Is back on the podcast to talk about her new book, In Light of All Darkness, Inside the Poly Class Kidnapping and the Search for America's Child. It is published by Grand Central Publishing. Kim does not identify as a true crime writer. It's not really her jam. Not really a subgenre of journalism that she ever wants to do again. But as Kim says, the story found her and she set out to write the book of record on this polyclass kidnapping from the early 1990s. So in this episode, we talk about how she navigated having a family member at the heart of the investigation, her father-in-law. Minimizing harm and maximizing truth, the ethics of writing true crime, and being a human first and a journalist second, as well as the importance of setting up writing retreats for yourself, how valuable they were for her, among other things. You know, there's always other things. If you head over to brendanomero.com, hey, hey, you can read show notes to this episode and sign up for my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, a curated list. I know, I know, I know that's basic, but whatevs. An essay by your resident crank, that's me. Books, stuff to make you happy. It goes up to 11, like, like literally, the list is 11 items long. The essay portion for next month's Rager is about how and why I finally deleted my Twitter account. Wow, riveting stuff. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Also, consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfbot. Sure, I'm asking for some money, but what you get is more than the satisfaction of helping ye old podcast. You get access to the community of other CNF and writers. I, you know, I've been starting these threads with a little video. And then you kind of talk amongst yourself. I jump in too. It's kind of fun. Don't lurk. You know, by all means, contribute to the conversation. Maybe exchange contact info. Make a friend. Patreon.com slash CNFpod. And always, there are free ways to support the show. And that's like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or ratings on Spotify. They go a long way towards validating the enterprise for the wayward CNFer. As you know, I have no name recognition. So to see a podcast with a bunch of ratings, people are more likely to give it a shot. Certainly not because of my name. As we established, no one knows who the hell I am. Shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador. 
And I love to celebrate this amazing product. So if you go to athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. Okay, there is a parting shot this week about the fetish, uh, fetishization, I guess that's how you could say that word, of morning routines. Uh, my shame for once being obsessed with them and why we shouldn't give a shit about them at all. But for now, I hope you dig this. Let's call it the Hardback Edition, episode 388 with Kim Cross Riff. Yes, um, you know, I, I've always believed and found that my my most urgent stories choose me and not the other way around. It's true of What Stands in a Storm and The Stall House and some of my features, but this one definitely cho- chose me because I, I've never been a true crime consumer and I've never felt particularly drawn to it as a, as a writer. I had to spend, you know, a couple of weeks on the crime beat at the New Orleans Times-Picayune was I was, when I was an intern. And I wrote one murder story and I was like, nope, not for me. <laughs> yeah. Like more power to you crime writers, but I'll be over here in education and levies. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I don't know, it was, it was pretty intense, but the story literally chose me because of the family connection. My father-in-law is the FBI agent who oversaw the polyclass kidnapping case. And it was, um, you know, he's been my father-in-law for 20 years now. And I think maybe seven years ago, my, after I'd finished what stands in a storm, my husband said, you know, as you're thinking about your next book, one, one story you might consider telling is the polyclass story. And I think I literally rocked back down my heels and thought like, whoa, that's, that's not my kind of story. You know, I like telling stories about, how the things that tear our world apart reveal what holds us together. And this doesn't seem to have a happy ending. And this just seems like sad and dark and just true crime. You know, I didn't feel very comfortable writing about it. Then I decided, well, I always like to know what I'm not choosing. And so I did my homework and I did a little research and I found out that there weren't, there wasn't a book of record about this case. There were two books published somewhere around 1994 before the trial, and they're both filled with um, errors and holes. And so I thought, well, there, there definitely is a, a potential need for this book. Um, or I guess I'll back up and say there, there's a potential, um, this book doesn't exist already. And then I did a little more research and I started talking to other investigators who participated in the case. And I realized that many of them were using it still 30 years later as a case study in their teaching. A lot of them become instructors and they train future investigators in their specialty. And they were using it as a case study um, in their classes. And I thought it was kind of interesting that a case 30 years old was still relevant. I kind of figured technology had progressed to the point where um, it it wouldn't be. But there were so many things that were um, twists and turns and red herrings and false leads in this case that it turns out that the whole thing is a great case study, whether you're teaching it from case management perspective or interviewing in an interrogation class or, um, you know, a a forensic technology class, they were all kind of teaching it. And so I thought maybe, you know, this case ought to be documented accurately and comprehensively, you know, once and for all. And I definitely had had the skills to do it because that's what I do. 
And I realized that because of my uh, my relationship with my father-in-law, that he could open the door to people who would never talk to another journalist. And so I felt kind of an obligation to to be the chronicler of this and to to get it down, you know, as a piece of important American history. Yeah, maybe give us give us a sense of the the sense of duty that you felt, oh, you know, to put this story down into a, as the investigators are, you know, getting into their twilight years and the uh, you know the overarching you know impacts and legacy that the, that this case uh, bore out. As I dug in, I realized that there were so many investigative firsts in this case that I don't think had been documented anywhere. Um, for example, um, the FBI's evidence response team was pretty brand new at this point. Um, before this case, when there was a crime scene that needed um, a forensic technician, they would send someone from the FBI lab in D.C., and that person would fly across country to California. And in the time it took them to get there, sometimes hours, sometimes days, trace evidence would disappear or get spoiled or get trampled and would not be useful. And so they were losing really important trace evidence in the time it took from that centralized model to get someone to the crime scene. And so there was this concept bubbling out from the ranks where um, FBI agents were saying, we need to have some of these forensic you know, procedures and, and tools, and we need, need localized teams that can get there within minutes or hours. And so they, um, this was the first case of the FBI's first ever evidence response team. And the people who came up with that concept and sort of, you know, proposed it and got buy-in from the Bureau were part of this case. And so I, I looked around for a history of the ERT and didn't really find one. Maybe one exists, but I didn't find it. And so it was pretty cool because I felt like I was getting down a piece of FBI history from the primary sources, the people who were involved, the people who, who were there and did it and could send me memos documenting that this was the first team and when it was created. And so, you know, things like that, I thought this, this is, this is kind of not only interesting, but kind of important history. It was also the first use of fluorescent powder and alternate light source. It was a technology at the time so new that the FBI didn't even own an alternate light source. It's now called a uh, forensic light source. Uh, they had borrowed one. Tony Maxwell had borrowed one from, I think, a vendor. And his wife ran a daycare in their living room. And he was teaching himself how to use it uh, to, to pick up the very delicate fingerprints of children in his living room because of the daycare. And so um, this was the first major case on which this technology was used. It was the first time the, uh, that uh, an FBI profiler was embedded and partnered with the ERT or, or an evidence team. So it was the first time that they, they paired up the behavioral science with the forensic science, and they worked closely together hand in hand. Um, I could go on. There, there are several other examples, but I thought, you know, this is... Um, this is of historical value, um, and I think there are some value to investigators who, God forbid, have to face a really, really complex investigation. And um, and then I like kind of my third thought was, you know, maybe people will also find it interesting to read because it was such a famous case. It's the kind of case that you know most Americans of a certain age remember it. I certainly did. I was I was uh, a junior in high school in Florida when it happened, and I remembered it. And so I thought, you know. This just this just needs to be documented. Yeah, and given that your father-in-law was 
you know, at the center center of the case and one of the lead investigators is, uh, you know, that provides it uh, its own set of potential journalistic quandaries. So how did you uh, <laughs> circumvent that and do an end around around that or, and just make sure that your uh, your blind spots were covered? That's a great question. Yeah. One of my biggest concerns was, you know, in in the era of J school that I went through, you're taught, you know, don't ever write about a family member because your objectivity will be questioned. And so I think I went out of my way um, to really work hard to be objective and to look for blind spots and to have readers, um, you know, read drafts and tell me, you know, am I, I didn't want to write a puff piece for the FBI. I wanted to be fair and I wanted to, um, you know, acknowledge, um, you know, things that didn't go right just as equally as things that did go right because things were learned from both of those. And I was real clear with him from the beginning you know, I attended one of his classes. He, he was teaching this in an in interviewing and interrogation class. I think it was for Batty, which is the Behavioral Analysis Training Institute. And I just sat in on a class to see how he taught it. And I was interested to see that he's very clear that um, about, you know, one of the big, biggest mistakes of the case, in his words, was the, the way the Kate and Jillian, the 12-year-old friends of Polly who witnessed her abduction, were, were treated by in investigators who started out by interviewing them and then, you know, in, in a desperate attempt to get more information, thinking that they might possibly be hiding key information or, or you know, keeping it to themselves, or they subjected them to more um, interrogation methods that would be more appropriate for an adult suspect. Mm. And it was very traumatizing to them. And they almost lost them as witnesses and, um, you know, caused some lasting trauma to the girls. And so I was... I was interested to know that he teaches this every time he teaches a class. And so I was real clear that, you know, we we're going to talk about the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. And he said, absolutely. And so to his credit, he never tried to assert editorial control. Um, he opened doors and then just kind of stepped out of the way and I, I ran with it. And then I, you know, once you talk to one person, then they, they introduce you to three more people and then it kind of spiders out from there. So I think that his, um, you know, his his blessing was a hundred percent part of why I got the access that I did. But to his credit, like he he never tried to make it his book, or he never tried to rewrite the narrative. Um, in fact, when I let him read a draft, he he fixed one thing. He was like, "Oh, this thing you said that it happened on this day, it actually happened on this other day." <laughs> so um, I was really grateful because if it had been another individual, it it might not have gone, gone that way. So I think I was kind of lucky. Yeah, the interrogation of Jillian and Kate, you just feel so, you feel for them throughout the mm -hmm. whole thing. You know, they were subjected to multiple interrogations, getting, each one getting a bit more, let's just say, like, mature or reckless in a sense. And then even having them reenact the whole thing, it's like, oh my God, these poor 12-year-old girls are being subjected subjected to this and you just uh, you know you really feel for them and and, and so in you know out of that how have things uh, changed when it comes to interrogating uh, child witnesses right well you know at the time uh, there was no such thing as a child and adolescent forensic uh, interviewer um, CAFIs, they're called and there really wasn't any special training for how to treat child and adolescent witnesses or victims differently from adults. And so 
the the investigators were using the tools that they had, which was, you know, interviewing interrogation. So now, you know, since then, I forget the, the years in which this occurred, but there, there are now people who are trained specialists and they, they take them into what's called soft rooms, which are kind of like living rooms. You know, they have paintings on the wall and couches. They, they don't look like the interrogation room with the hard chair and the, <laughs> you know, bad lighting that you see in uh, a lot of films, you know, and they, they treat them more, more gently. And um, I don't know, I haven't watched a, a cafe work, but as I understand it, they, they would not have subjected them to the same kind of interrogation and they definitely wouldn't have polygraphed uh, a kid today. And um, they, they probably would not have done the, the reenactment. So I think a lot has been learned since then, but, but it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, Kate and Jillian were treated this way and it was really traumatic, caused lasting trauma, but it also produced, I think, you know, some changes in the way things are done. And I think that they're, that part of the story hadn't been told. And I think it was important for them that it was told here and acknowledged. And maybe you can help people understand, you know, when you're making a, um, in, uh, uh, trying to make contact with, with people like close to a case like this. So a Jillian or a Kate or some, someone very close to at the heart of it. And when you want to try to, uh, you know, approach them to get them to to see if they'll participate in the story and and how you how you make that outreach and and have that dialogue uh, whether they want to participate or whether they don't want to. Right. Um, thanks for asking that. It's one of the the scariest uh, moments I think for for me because I was so worried that by reaching out I would I would you know, stir up past trauma and put them, you know, make them relive some of the worst days of their lives. And I, I didn't want to do that. But the alternative is that you don't ask. And then, you know, they're surprised by it coming out or they, they, they might have had something to say and they feel like they haven't been heard. And so like one of my guiding principles throughout this whole journey was how do I maximize truth and minimize harm? And so um, I started kind of this, this kind of outreach with what stands in a storm and it seemed to work really well. So I, I did it again here. And when there's someone who's gone through significant trauma and probably has been exploited or abused by the, the media or has, has had a bad experience with the media, I always assume that, you know, I'm going to be perceived as an unwanted intrusion. So I try to be as minimally intrusive as I can. And I try to find first some intermediary who can vet me first and get to know me first and then decide if they are comfortable connecting me with with the primary source and um, or or at least comfortable forwarding a message from me to the primary source because I feel like even knowing that a journalist knows your email address or your phone number or your mailing address feels kind of uncomfortable. So I try to read out, reach out to this th- through another party who can say, yes, I've talked to this person. I've talked to Kim. You know, I've, I've checked her out. I feel comfortable connecting you. And then, but then it's probably easier for them to say no to this person that would be to me. And I want to make it easy for them to say whatever they, they want to say. And so with some people, um, I reached out this way and then I didn't hear back. So for example, with Kate and Jillian, I reached out through a third party and said, can you please forward my letter to them? And my letter usually says like, hi, this is, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. This is why I want to do this. You know, I 
really want to tell the story and, and the legacy of it and show the positive changes that resulted from this case. And, um, and I realized that this may be extremely painful to you and you may want nothing to do with me, but I wanted to give you the choice. And if you want, you can, um, we can have a preliminary meeting that's completely off the record, uh, either a phone call, a Zoom meeting, in person, whatever you prefer. And it can be no expectations, totally off the record, where you just get to meet me and ask me anything you want, like grill me. And I will be completely transparent. And, um, and then I'll give you some time to vet me even more um, if you want to talk to other people who have trusted me to tell the story of their trauma. I can put you in touch with them. You can have a private conversation with them. Um, do whatever you need to, to make a, you know, an informed decision. And if you tell me that you don't want to talk to me, I will, I will not pressure you. I won't bother you again. And so this is what I did pretty much to everyone. And for, for some people, they, um, I never heard back. For some people, they said, uh, I'm not interested. And then some people said, yeah, I would like to talk to you first. And, you know, and other people were, were invested right away. And I guess what was in, what, the most important thing I learned from that is never to assume. Because some people who I thought, oh, your story's never been heard. I think that you'll appreciate finally being heard after 30 years you know, my assumption was wrong. And for other people who I thought, oh my gosh, you're, you're going to want, you're going to be upset with me for even reaching out. You're going to be angry and want me to go away immediately. I also was wrong. And so it's just a scary moment because you fear not only rejection, but you just don't want to cause harm. So I just try to be really gentle and respectful and treat people the way I would want to be treated. And I think that giving them agency is just the most important part is like, do you want to be involved in this? And to what extent do you want to be? And if they wanted to um, talk on background and um, not do interviews, but help me fact check, then that that's what they could do. If they um, wanted to, I don't know, um, first hear me out, then that's what we did. So it was different for probably, you know, m- most of the people I, that I reached out to that way. Yeah. In terms of background and on the record uh those those are things that that are uh, i think sometimes confusing and can mm-hmm. you as a journalist use information in it, like uh, in the book if it's background information like non attributable to mm-hmm. to someone so how do you navigate that great question so um off the record means technically you can't use the information at all and so like when I say the first meeting's off the record, it's like no recording. Um, you know, if you decide that you don't want to move forward with participating in the book, then I, I will not use anything from this. And if there's something I learn from it and I get it from another source, then that's okay. But I have to find another source, but I can't attribute it to you and I can't even use it. You know, it's a place where not a lot of journalists like to go. It's a dangerous place. With Kate, Kate did not want to be interviewed and I'm trying to, I want to really respect her privacy here because um, she talked to me with a great deal of trust and trepidation. And um, I'm allowed to share that, you know, she talked to me on background, which means um, the information you can use, but I don't want to be quoted or I don't want any of this attributed to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, but we talked a lot about nuanced things that allowed me to write with greater empathy and nuance and context. And I think like there was great, great value in that because I think it made me a more um, sensitive storyteller to some of the things that she endured and some of the concerns she had about this type of story perpetuating 
for example, missing white women syndrome. You know, books like this can can perpetuate bad things. And so it made me, I think it really improved the book because it made me think in um, ways that weren't self-evident to me uh, about what I was writing about. And for that, I was really, really grateful. I also, for her, I, I read to her chapters in which she appeared and and let her, you know, fact check and also just know what was going out, was going to going into the book. And I think that that produced a, a good comfort level. Um, Jillian was willing to be interviewed on the record and um, she felt very comfortable, different level of comfort. And so she helped, you know, she added some additional facts that weren't known. And she also helped me fact check and she was an excellent fact checker. And so um, having her, her go through the chapters before it went out into the world, she, she changed very little. She'd just say, oh, this, this, this white van, it wasn't, it didn't belong to this person, it belonged to this other person, but felt it was very accurate. And so that gave me a lot of confidence before sending it out into the world because it was really important for me that it was accurate and that it, you know, um, they knew what was coming. Yeah, and also the the missing white girl syndrome too is part of the you know part of, part of the sort of ethic of uh, of the story as well. Like I had a story before I had even heard of what that was. Um, this there was this young woman Morgan Dana Harrington who was abducted from a Metallica concert in two thousand nine, and um, I was following that closely, and I ended up writing a story and trying to pitch it to the Washington Post, and and it was. Uh, the editor I got in touch with, she actually liked it, but she's like, you know, it's just, there will be so much backlash, you know, cause you know, cause she's white, she's blonde and, and everything. And it was the first time I had been encountered with that. And it, and it I understand it now, but at the time I was like, Oh, that's a, that's kind of a bummer. Um, but, but I get it because the media focus can be so, uh, you know, give all this attention to, you know, missing pretty white girls yeah, it is. Um, it really was evident when I was looking at other kidnappings and I realized, oh, my gosh, the household names, they're all white. Most of them are, you know, middle class and attractive and a great majority are, are you know, pretty young girls. And um, that that bothered me, you know, and the two people who really brought this to my attention and brought to my attention the case of another 12 year old girl who was kidnapped and murdered in Petaluma. Her name is Georgia Lee Moses, and I had never heard of her. And it really bothered me that in all of these hundreds of interviews I did, no one had once mentioned Georgia Lee Moses until Kate and Jillian independently told me about her. And she was uh, a 12-year-old girl who was found um, slain and naked on the side of 101 a few years after Polly. And um, she was found before she was reported missing. So there was not a, a big public search mm. um, because she, but she was already dead by the time anyone realized she was missing. And, um, but it, it really bothered me that I hadn't heard about her, not once. And so um, I thought it was important to acknowledge, um, you know, that this, this inequity exists and that I really didn't want my book to be another one that just kind of perpetuates that, that the problem. Yeah. And with, uh, with, True crime too. There's some some something of an inherent harm that comes across with doing it, and it can feel exploitative and sometimes feel a bit icky uh, to do it. And you know, if you're ever confronted with those feelings, how did you get beyond it to realize that there was a greater purpose in what you were doing, and not just to make something that feels like tabloid page turner type uh, type of a story? 
Right. I, I wrestled with that a lot. You know, the, um, the idea that a story that I write could cause someone harm deeply bothers me. And for me to even take on this story, I had to first do enough research to determine like, is, is, can the good that can come of this, um, vastly outweigh the damage Can maximize truth, minimize harm. And when I realized how, what the legacy of this case was, um, and how many things it changed for the better and how many lessons that it has taught and could continue teaching if it were documented, I felt like that, that was meaningful and that was potential enough to, to outweigh the risk of, of harm. The other thing that I thought a lot about was, you know, how can I give agency to the people whose story this is? You know, I didn't think about this as my, you know, jazz hands, my book. Um, <laughs> I was more of a story midwife to help people who had not, many of whom had never told the story to anyone, even their families, to help them kind of birth and give shape to the trauma that they've been carrying around for 30 years. And I was really surprised by how many of the detectives and FBI agents cried in our interview. They, a lot of them had not ever processed what they'd been carried around. And it showed me though, how deeply they cared about this case and about, about Polly. And when they talked about her, they, they wept openly and sometimes really surprised themselves. I felt like if I could help them tell their story and also what it meant to them, that maybe there could be some healing along the way. And it turns out that, you know, in some cases, surprising us both, there was more than we thought to be had. I'd like to share the story of Andy Mazzanti, who was the Petaluma detective who interviewed Jillian on the first night. And it was a gentle interview and he did a good job. He was fresh out of interviewing training. Um, and it, it went well, but, and he also, you know, worked throughout the case. He was the one who found the inked palm print, um, that was matched with the latent print that was found on Polly's bed print, uh, bed frame. Andy had never talked to the media. He'd never talked to his family about this. And for some reason he decided to talk to me, I think because some of, I think Val Bello, one of his colleagues who knows me really well said, you really should talk to her. I trust her. She's going to do this the right way. And Andy um, processed a lot of emotions in our conversation, but um, it it was healing for him. And he told me several times that this um, this opened the door to him talking with his family about it for the first time ever. And at some point, it spurred him to sell his house in one state and move to another. And it it just I don't know it unlocked something in him that was really powerful. It wasn't like that for everyone. I think for some people you know, woke sleeping dogs. Um, it, it stirred up past, past hurt. And a lot, for a lot of them, it was, it was in sort of surprising, uh, layers or, you know, it wasn't just the, the tragedy and the trauma of this, this kidnapped and murdered child. It was also the interpersonal relationships created in the, in the pressure surrounding this case. There was a lot of, um, you know, drama that went on inside the investigation that I think, um, upset people and that people are still upset about decades later. And so it was interesting. The things that people had to process weren't always the things I expected, but, um, on the whole, I think, you know, helping them kind of tell their story, I feel like it was told, um, you know, feel like they what they had to say was heard. I think that that was, you know, of its own value separate from 
the, the book as a product that someone will consume. The process had value to it as well. And technically speaking, as you're interviewing people about very delicate subjects and their roles in, in a particular story, and you know this one in, in particular, you know, and you notice that it's it, it is upsetting to people, and you know, and 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 they're willingly going with you, but you know, and you notice maybe people are crying, or it's just deeply hurtful, or they're maybe they're shutting down. You know, how have you learned? to navigate those conversations in, in the way that, you know, you, you do singularly? You know, I just try to listen and I try not to fill uncomfortable silences. You know, sometimes if they move me, I cry with them. I mean, it's never a fake cry. It's always real. You know, I feel what they feel. And I think that's a, a danger to this job is that, you know, when you're operating with real empathy, you feel other people's pain. And you can take it on and carry it around yourself. I think all the journalistic skills in the world do not trump just human empathy and caring about someone's welfare. And I care about the people that I write about. You know, a lot of them were in our lives forever. You know, the people, uh, the characters in What Stands in the Storm, I went to their weddings and their birth announcements and I've held their babies. And, you know, I think that when you share something this I don't know of this emotional magnitude, you're kind of, it opens the door to a bond. And so I think, I don't know, you could have, I could rattle off all the skills in the world, but nothing trumps just caring on a very real level about the people that you're dealing with and connecting with them human to human. And I, you know, in all of this, I, I try to be a human first and a journalist second. And if I feel like, you know, I'm harming someone, then I, I try to withdraw or give them an out and be like, you know, whatever I have to gain for the story is not worth the cost, you know, if it's hurting you. And if you want to disengage, then you can disengage and I won't bother you. I won't contact you. And if you want to reach out to me when you're ready, you can, but I will respect your boundaries. I think that's the other thing is just giving people the agency to set boundaries and then respecting them um, and, and giving them the time and space that they need. And if they're never ready, they're never ready. And that's okay. Like, I just don't ever try to feel entitled to anything. And I try to fact check every assumption along the way, because so often they're wrong. Just by nature of the the industry, like journalists just have a, a, a bad name of being maybe callous or insensitive or just being like that, that 60 Minutes Mike Wallace thing. Well, here's the documents. Like, you said it right here and like confronting yeah. people. And like, that's the image. And so it can be uh, it, it can be hard to sort of get beyond that sort of that belligerent facade of like the aggressive journalist. But I think people in all like sort of our wing of the journalism um, umbrella uh, academy. Uh, I think we tend to be a bit more, uh, I don't know, softer, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't know. I think everyone's different. I think that, you know, it's good that there are bulldogs out there. I'm not one. I, I'm yeah, tenacious, but not in a bulldog way. Um, yeah. I'm tenacious in an earnest way, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes to a fault, probably. But, you know, it's good. You need We need bulldogs out there to hold accountable um politicians and agencies and um, people who uh, might have something invested in promoting mistruths. But for the normal human being who's been affected by a story, the people that that I'm dealing with in my stories, they're they're people and they're 
they're trying to tell their truth. And I guess I'll share that one of the one of the interesting things that I had to navigate was when when people's recollections of facts did not line up. You know, I always went I had a preponderance of documents that were generated in 1993. And whenever possible, I, I went back to those to corroborate information, because I think like if something's documented close to the time it happened, it's more likely to be accurate than something that's remembered 30 years later. I learned that memory is, um, you know, a wildly um, fluctuating thing that can be affected by, um, and you know, by, by suggestions, um, by, by even like the wrong question can, can lead someone into a, a memory that isn't totally accurate, but feels true to them. And so I had to do a lot of um, triangulating of the truth when it came to things that were remembered that weren't documented, but were, were remembered um, slightly differently between different sources. And sometimes that meant circling back to the source and saying, well, um, I, I, I believe, I believe you're telling me that your truth when you told me this, however, these other people remember it slightly differently. You know, what, what do you think's going on here? And sometimes we didn't all land on a, a place that was, you know, as precise as I would like to be. So I tried to address that in the footnotes to honor that. Here's what this person said. Here's what this person said. And I don't, I don't try to be the, you know, the judge of, of who's right and wrong, but you know, here are what the documents say and, reader, you can come to your own conclusion based on this, this evidence that I can give to you. So it's really interesting to deal, to deal with that. Yeah. Did you seek counsel from other, you know, writers of, of crime and how they, you know, just how they, how they handle maybe the reporting and the writing and follow-ups and stuff Mm -hmm. of that nature? I did. Um, you know, one friend I'd like to give a shout out to is, um, Kate Miles, Catherine Miles, who wrote Trailed. And um, she and I have never actually met, but um, we've talked on the phone a few times because our careers have had a, a funny parallel where we both wrote about storms in our first book. I think I blurbed her book, Superstorm. Uh, I think it was super, it was about Superstorm Sandy. At some point, I reached out to Catherine because she had written this a book about um, a true crime, a, a murder um, of two women on the, I think it was on the Appalachian Trail in Skyline Park. And I reached out to her and I said, Kate, I, I don't, I know we don't know each other that well, but I, I feel like I need to talk to someone because this is really heavy and I'm I'm going through some stuff. And I, I want to know if like you went through this too and, and how I can deal with it because it was just, it, it took me to really dark places where it was affecting my mental and physical health. And so she was so kind and reached out and, and kind of talked me through and told me how she dealt with things and helped me prepare for um, just kind of the weirdness that surrounds a true crime book launch. I was really scared about just strange people coming out of the woodwork and with like, can you help me, you know, with this case things? And I, I just didn't know what to expect. And she was really helpful. In general, I leaned on my my community of writers pretty heavily. You know, I did a lot of this writing on retreat alone at a cabin in the mountains and spent, you know, weeks on end by myself. And I tried to talk to someone different every night. And so, you know, 
friends who are writers kind of helped me, helped me through the process and helped me think through a lot of the agonizing decisions about, okay, I know this, but does it need to go in? You have this dilemma. How do I approach it? Um, you know, this person says one thing, this person says another, how could I handle it? And, um, I think like without them, it would have been a lot harder to, to do this. How did being alone, uh, help or hinder the, the writing of this book? Um, I think for all of my books, I, you know, whenever I have a really big story, I find that it's, it's really hard to do the, just the cognitive processing that you need to do with such a vast amount of research, unless you have uninterrupted chunks of time by yourself. And, um, I get interrupted a lot, uh, at home by my wonderful family. So I have to, um, I have to go away and, and, and really just kind of like live in it for, for days on end to process it all and to make all of the links, to link the different parts together, um, to get, you know, in such a way that produces a book. So it's pretty key. And I have some, um, really awesome friends who uh, donate a, a place for me to go and write because it would be pretty expensive for me to, to, you know, get a hotel room for as much time as I need. But um, I'm, I found that, you know, in my writing life, one of the biggest gifts that's ever been given to me or that I've, you know, allowed myself to have is the writing retreat, which allows you to focus on just nothing but, eating, sleeping, writing, and then a little exercise to, to really get your head around it. And I think that's the only way my books get written, to be honest. You're very adamant about not making uh, the publication in the, 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 uh, of this recent book about you at all. Uh, but there is, when you take on something that, that's this heavy, that there is something of a cost that some writers and reporters take on when they uh, take a story that is... That, that is of this nature. And, you know, just for you, how are, how have you been, you know, what, what has been the cost for, you know, for you? Oh, well, um, so as you know, we're, we're I'm, I'm doing this podcast interview from the hospital. Where <laughs> I was admitted. Um, I, this is like my third day in the hospital. And um, I came in with uh, chest pains and shortness of breath and some kind of flu-like symptoms. And I came in, well, I went to urgent care and urgent care sent me to the emergency room and the emergency room people freaked out and thought like I had, you know, I was having a heart attack or something. And, um, I think that, I think in reality, what's happened is I have a virus, but I also have mega stress from this book and this launch. And I've been having, you know, watching my blood pressure escalate steadily over the past, um, really year, but the past six months, especially to hypertension levels where my nurse friends are like, Kim, you need to get on blood pressure medication. I'm like, but I don't want to. I'm healthy. I'm a mountain biker. Like, you know, I eat pretty well. And they're like, this is, you know, we don't want you to have a stroke or heart attack. Like, this is really serious. And so um, finally, when I started feeling, you know, pretty, pretty bad, I came and um, they, my doctor is about to release me, but he was like, you know, you really might uh, seek out a therapist and some, you know, tools to manage your stress. And I thought I was managing it pretty well, but it, it definitely has, um, I think that the work, the nature of this work is, is that it, you know, I think there's such a thing as sympathetic trauma or secondary PTSD, where you, when you really do feel empathy, when you're talking with someone about something they've been through, you take it on, you know, I, if I'm, if I want to make the reader feel something, I have to feel it, you know, twice, twice over. And if I'm 
you know, carrying that around for a year, it, it kind of seeps into your body. Like my body does not feel normal right now. I think that um, I'm going to have to do some aggressive work to kind of heal from this book. But I guess I would just say that like no one should take this kind of work on with any idea that it doesn't come at a cost. And, you know, if the book can go out there and do some good, um, then it's worth it. But but man, this I hope this will be my first and last true crime book. Please, if you're out there wanting to pitch me a story, please make it about fishing. <laughs> I need to go <laughs> write some fishing stories um, because I'm I feel like it did a little bit, you know, forever changed by this book. And um, I think that's OK. But uh, but yeah, I, you know, I hope it I hope it's worth it. Yeah, I think, well, Truman Capote was pretty uh, marred by doing In, in Cold Blood. And, uh, you know, I didn't have maybe the coping skills to, to deal with it. Um, I think it affected him greatly. And I know um, a former editor, boss of mine, she was kind of a bulldog type. And uh, she was, as a reporter in Louisiana, uh, she was close with someone who was on death row. And... Mm-hmm. Um, she insisted on watching the execution because she, she really thought it was like, I, you know, I got to do this, you know, it's what you tough reporters do. And she regrets doing it because it, mm-hmm. it kind of fucked her up. Like she was just like, I, I should not have done that. I should have swallowed my pride and not done that. And I, so I think, you know, when you fly close to the sun of true crime stories, it, uh, it can, I think people can discredit or discount how it does affect uh, you know, the writer and the reporter, yeah, not to discredit the, the, the trauma uh, at the center of it and the people yeah. at the center of what it. What we but experience is, yeah, is yeah. nothing compared to what the families went through. Exactly. Nothing. So exactly. like, I don't even, I even sometimes feel guilty talking about, you know, the effect it's had on me because it's nothing compared to what they went through. Yeah. But well, I don't want to say it's nothing. It's, it is minuscule compared to what they went through, but it's also not nothing. And I think people need to understand it's not nothing. And um, that it's the cost of what we do. But I do think coming back to, you know, the potentially exploitative nature of true crime, I don't think all true crime stories are, um, you know, are the same. You know, I do think that there, there seems to be a movement um, or an acknowledgement that stories that are very perpetrator focused and that treat the victim as a commodity are, you know, potentially re-traumatizing and damaging, um, and stories that, that focus on who the victim was or the investigators or the people who are trying to help are inherently a little bit different. Um, and I do think that, I do think that stories in general are empathy machines that can help someone go through something and process it and come out the other side with meaning. And the person who goes through that might might have had experience with the, the crime or, or maybe not. But I do think that processing of trauma and the finding, you know, meaning and good in it without being in a Pollyanna-ish way, like doesn't have to um, dismiss or devalue or minimize the trauma. But, but seeing that, like sometimes beautiful things come from our brokenness and traumatic events tend to forge stronger people and communities. I think that that's a message that we can't hear or say too often because, you know, we all go through trauma in our lives. And was it Hemingway who said that the world eventually breaks us 
breaks us all, but some of us grow stronger at the broken places. I do think there's a truth in that. And that's the bigger truth that, that can be found in these stories and that can actually help us process and heal from them. So I think, again, processing is necessary to healing. And um, without processing, I think we can get stuck in the trauma. So my hope is that stories like this, excuse me, can um, help people out there who are still feeling, you know, the heaviness of this, of this thing that Polly went through and Petaluma went through, that, um, you know, it can be part of making sense of the senseless thing and um, moving forward with a little more hope. Oh, fantastic. Well, Kim, as always, it's it's so great to always uh, have these conversations with you and you handle this story with aplomb. And I, you know, I just, I wish you the best of luck with it, Kim. Oh, thanks, Brendan. Thanks. You always ask really good questions and thanks for, for being thoughtful and sensitive and, uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for putting your work out there into the world. Beautiful. That was good timing. <laughs> Oh, we did it. Somehow, some way, the show came out again. Don't know. I honestly don't know how it happens. Another pod in the books. I have a conversation with my book editor in about 45 minutes from now, at the time of this recording. You know, but by the time you hear it, I will have already had the conversation. I will, I, I will either feel full of piss and vinegar as I have six months to go, or a looming sense of panic and dread. Hopefully it's the former. Fuck, it better be the former. I came across a cool article in LitHub about Ursula Le Guin's routine and such. And there's a kind of a pretty cool video, a, a documentary at. Uh, it'll be in linked up in next month's uh, Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter where you can sign up for that at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. And it brought up all my feelings of shame around how I used to fetishize morning routines. Like, not like literally fetishize, but you, you, you catch my drift. And that, that'd be fucking weird. Uh, you get someone who's like, I drink 16 ounces of water right when I wake up. And then someone in the comments is like, well, what, what water are you drinking, man? And it's those people who are the worst because they're the ones looking for the capital A answers. The skeleton key. The hack to get them to the promised land. Yeah, if I if I drink the same water as so-and-so, and, uh, and then I'm going to realize my dreams. Oh, hold on. If I use the same guitar pick as Kirk Hammett, I, I, then I'm going to be able to melt the faces off the crowd. Stevens King's pencil, the same, same thing. You know, in that article I mentioned, which will be linked up in next month's Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, where you can sign up for it at brendanomero.com. Le Guin's son wrote, and I typed this up, so it's probably going to typos, and I'm probably going to stumble all over the place. He writes, questions about process and routine are unavoidable for writers. While it seems churlish to withhold answers, I suspect many writers don't enjoy these questions, correct? Ursula certainly didn't. She felt that too much focus on process was distracting for aspiring writers and that her answers might sustain the distraction, correct? 
eating the same breakfast or using the same pen as Ursula will not help you write like Ursula, but the frequency and fervency with which such details are pursued indicates that many believe otherwise. True. In any case, one should not want to write like Ursula. One should want to write like oneself, which means developing one's own routine and process. And perhaps it's through listening to other routines that we can, like, you know, add to cart and develop our own. I, I'd never thought that, like, you know, like, maybe, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should do that. Oh, that's kind of cool that that person does that. Maybe that, or do I need to meditate, make the coffee? But wait, is coffee good for you or is it spiking the anxiety I'm trying to quell by meditating? Should I exercise, go for a walk, eat, or fast? And, and then there's the snooze bar shame. There's that thing. Fact is, this is such a solitary act. You know, writing or you know, whatever, whatever it is. Primarily, you're primarily a writer. So writing is primarily solitary act. That maybe our infatuation comes from trying to seek some degree of validation. Like, am I doing this wrong? Am I doing this correctly? You know, if Andre Debuse does it that way, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I do that too. And now I don't feel like such a putz. But I think you know the answer, that there is no right or wrong answer. Fact is, trying to find this perfect routine or mimicking a successful writer's routine, all it's doing is putting mounds of pressure on you. It's also a way of hiding that, you know, and also a way of casting the blame. If their routine doesn't work for you, and then you didn't get the work done because that was a crappy routine or some, some shit like that. You know, it's like voice. You need to find it on your own metabolize all those other influences which i guess is kind of what you can do with other people's morning routine is kind of like create a frankenstein monster of whatever routine if you like so and so and such and such yeah you put it all together you know if all you have is one hour on a sunday morning then you make it count somehow you know you get really put a little put a little stone wall around it I can speak to this because, yeah, I don't know, in the ballpark of like eight or ten years ago, I was very much obsessed with successful people's routines and how they might be able to unlock something inside me or unlock the possibility of something greater. That if I just did that, then the goals would be realized. You know, if I adopt this bro's routine, then maybe I'll thrive and then I'll be interviewed on podcasts and someone will ask me about my morning routine and I'll tell them that I must start my day with 48 upside down push-ups and eat a salad in a sauna then take a cold plunge while gurgling pureed sardines. Mason Curry's lovely little book, Daily Rituals, is a book about routines and rituals that primarily writers adopt. I think it's all writers. And it's cool, and I, I dig it in a way that you might dig seeing, like, sea otters doing backflips at the zoo. You know, it's all very cute and nice. And I think we all have, we all harbor some curiosity about how the masters and our heroes go about the work. It's just natural. Someone asked me the other day what my process was. Process. And I understand that writing is uh is hard and kind of foreign to them and they were genuinely curious and my answer is always unsatisfactory and always changing like for now with this book that i'm writing in this particular deadline in this month you know i write for about well one hour usually between eight thirty and 10 a.m it, it usually i i'm usually able to cobble together squeeze about 500 to a thousand words 
in this time, citing as I write. So it's kind of a clunky process, but very important. Then the rest of the day is archival research, reading through my transcripts, making phone calls, making phone calls, making phone calls. But but then again, sometimes I'm not that tired at night, and I, maybe I'll go sneak in to the office and do a little, you know, pull out an article from my massive spreadsheet, and then, then scribble another hundred words or something. Yeah, right now, my only job is the book. Like, what a gift that is. I don't have a day job at the moment, but if I had a day job, that would greatly affect when and how I do this. Now, point being, nothing I add will probably be helpful to you. You merely need to tend your garden, man. <laughs> tend to the seasonality of your garden. Fertilize when appropriate and drink a lot of water. Soda stream charged tap water. So stay wild, CNF'er. If you can't do interview, see ya.